Children, you are dismissed to teach me to worship. And if you are able and willing, I now ask you to stand in honor of reading God's holy and inerrant word. From Ephesians chapter 6, we'll be in verses 5 to 9 this, this morning. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Please pray with me. Jesus, as you said you came to preach the good news of the kingdom of God, you preached repentance. And now you come to us through the preaching of your word. Jesus, use me this morning to proclaim your gospel and the good news to this people for our good, that we might know who we are, who you created us to be, and that we might be faithful. That we might be faithful in every aspect of our lives. Father, we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Bond servants. This is the Greek word doulos, which also can be translated as slaves. This morning is going to be a little bit different than what you might actually hear from me, and I'm actually going to speak into a cultural issue. What I normally focus on is the preaching of the life-giving message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, him crucified and him risen. And we, we will get there, I promise. But this morning I want to give first an apologetic and a hermeneutic, an, an, a, a defense of what the scripture is actually teaching in a hermeneutic, a way that we are actually intended to read and understand this passage. Tell me if you haven't heard something like this before. How can you believe in the Bible when it seems as though God supports slavery? And not only supports slavery, but encourages slavery. Or this, I can't believe in a God who enslaves people to other people. If you haven't heard something like this, I promise you, you will at some point. Whether in college or in the news or in social media, someone will say, instead of promoting slavery, Paul should have condemned it and ended it right here. And I hope for us, when we read this passage, when we hear this word bondservants, when we hear this word slaves, I hope it doesn't sit well with you. Because whether it's in the Greco-Roman culture or whether it's in antebellum southern slavery found in our own country, it, 
in human history, slavery has dehumanized image bearers of God. It has seen people as property. It has seen people as possessions. Rather than inherent image bearers of the one true living God. And so we might ask, why doesn't Paul address this? Why doesn't Paul command, masters, free your slaves? These are the types of questions people in our culture are asking today, and for good reason. But whatever our culture might say about this scripture, I do want to point out that our culture actually does something very well. It values human dignity. Now, of course, how well they do it and for what reasons do they do that, that's a different topic for a different day. But something our culture does is it sees the inherent worth and value of every single person that's alive. And brothers and sisters, this is Edenic. This is what the hearts and the minds and souls of every person on the earth should do when they see people. They should search or be searching for proper identity and they should long that everybody be valued for who they are. They should long to be in the proper relationship with their creator. They should long and have a desire to be in, a pop, in the proper place, in the presence of God himself. And as Tim Keller says, there is a God-shaped hole in the heart of every person, and we spend our lives trying to fill that with whatever we think can fill it. This is what our culture is longing for, and they should, because they're longing for a relationship with God. For the knowledge of God is plain to all people, the scriptures say. Now, whether they honor God or seek him through and only through Christ, I don't know. But something that our culture does is they value people. And what our culture tends to do in this passage is they typically read this passage and immediately throw the baby out with the bathwater. They say, if you do this, if you view slaves as something that is good, then you cannot believe anything about this text. They don't read this passage within its context. Paul addresses slaves. And they try to understand what Paul, and they don't really understand what Paul is trying to say to the church. He's applying to every aspect of every single life the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the first thing I want us to see this morning is how Paul addresses this problem. How he addresses the people of Ephesus and their context. And then I want to see, us to see how he applies the gospel to their lives. This context in which Paul is writing it is believed that one-third of the entire population was a slave, owned by 5% of the rich 
elite. And what we see Paul doing here in this context is something that has, was never done by any author in the first century, except in the scriptures. Just as we've seen over the past four weeks, who does Paul address? He addresses wives and husbands. He addresses children and their parents. Here, Paul, in the same way, is addressing slaves in the exact same breath that he's addressing masters. In just two paragraphs, Paul levels the playing field of those to whom the culture would never have addressed in his day. Paul is here implicitly saying what he says in Galatians 3, 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. And he's not just doing that here in verses 5 through 10. Remember, verses 5 through 10 is within the context of the household code. The household code that is within the context that we should all submit together out of reverence for Christ. That also means that this is within the context of chapter 5, verse 2, that we are all to be imitators of God, beloved children, and to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. It means he's addressing both slaves and masters to do what he told the entire church, to walk in a manner worthy of your calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It means that when Paul's addressing both slaves and masters here, he's been addressing them the entire book. He doesn't just turn to slaves once we get to chapter 6. He's been addressing slaves and masters through that entire book. And guess what that means? They're both saints. They've both been chosen to be holy and blameless in Christ from before the foundation of the world. They've both been predestined to adoption as sons through Christ according to his purpose and will. They both have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. They are both worthy of the blood of Jesus forgiven of their trespasses. They have both obtained an inheritance through the Holy Spirit. They both have hope in Christ Jesus, for they are both in Christ Jesus. It is their faith and their love together that Paul has heard about and rejoices. It is for them both that Paul does not cease to give thanks you see, Paul is addressing the entire church, which leads up to chapter 6. It's both slaves and masters who are being addressed, and the truth of the gospel is being applied to the depravity of the human heart, exactly where it finds them. The gospel doesn't take us out of where we are. It addresses us where we are and shapes us and forms us by the truth that God loves sinners. That Christ died for sinners. Throughout this week, I've read much about all the differences between slavery and the Greco-Roman world 
and in the southern states in the United States, trying to give us an understanding, trying to understand how they can be different. And there, was, there are many differences. I've got five of them. However, in reading about all these differences between then and now, the evidence remains the same. Slaves were always treated inhumanely and as possessions. And this is why it's so important to see what Paul is doing. He's addressing the church and applying the gospel, showing that every person is valued in his image, that every person needs the same thing. They need Jesus. The gospel is for all people. It is the power of salvation for anyone who believes, just as it was in the Old Testament, according to the covenant promises. So to hear. The gospel applies to all. When Abraham believed and received the sign of circumcision, he applied it to everyone in his household, to his children and to his slaves. So too, here in Ephesians, all are heirs of the covenant through Christ. Anyone who claims that God is pro-slavery commits the affubelli, affubelli fallacy of depending the conclusion on an argument based on wrong interpretations of a statement. Paul isn't pro-slavery. Paul is pro-gospel. Paul is addressing the heart. This is what we see in the letter to Philemon, as Maggie read greatly. Paul addresses a brother in Christ and encourages him to respond to his slave Onesimus based upon the implications of the gospel. This is why he said that I'm sending him back to you and that you might receive him no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. Paul writes to Philemon, Philemon assuming that he will act according to the truth of the gospel according to the call to which he has been called, and he will no longer see Onesimus as a slave, but as a brother in Christ. That he will no longer treat him as a slave, but that he will treat him as a co-heir of the kingdom of God, an image bearer worthy of dignity and respect. This is what he says when he asks masters, do the same to them. He's asking masters. He's asking people like Philemon. He's asking Christians. Treat all people as though they are brothers and sisters in Christ. He's addressing both groups. He's leveled the playing field. For all are dead in their trespasses and sin in which they once walked, following the course of this world. And it is, by, and it is for all that are saved by grace through faith. All are united to Christ and are part of his body. 
For Paul has said, there is only one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Don't you see? Paul is speaking into their context, and he finds himself applying the gospel. God spoke directly to them and said, this is what you need. And he did the exact same thing for them that he did the people in Exodus. He brought them out of slavery, and what did he do? He brought them near to himself. The culture is right. Paul doesn't abolish slavery. But do you know what's harder to abolish than slavery? The sinful heart of man. What Paul sees and what Paul understands is that if we don't get to the heart, the rest doesn't matter. Paul can yell at a dead man all that he wants, but a dead man will never be able to obey. A dead man will never be able to to fulfill the law's commands. This is why all men and women need Christ, for he fulfilled what the law demands when we couldn't. He lived the perfect life when we didn't, and he gives us his merit through love and grace. He obeyed God perfectly. All our hope is in Jesus without distinction. For the righteousness of God has manifested itself apart from the law. Although the the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul knows exactly what the church needs right here. They need Jesus. They need to know that they are justified by grace. This is what Greg taught in Sunday school. They need the righteousness of Christ. What Paul is doing is he isn't starting a revolution. Paul is shining the light of the gospel and establishing the implications for the church of Jesus Christ. Good people have strived very hard to try to abolish slavery. But it's only in Christ. It is only Christ who has abolished our sins by going to the cross and doing what we couldn't. Paul is going after the heart. He isn't preaching moralism, just do better. He isn't saying, just do this and everything will be okay. Paul is saying, come to Christ for you are all sinners and you all need the same thing, Christ and his benefits. Before they can do anything in obedience to Christ, before we can do anything in obedience to Christ, we must know Christ of him crucified and the power of his resurrection. 
You know what Paul is preaching? Don't look at yourselves. Look to Jesus. And what I hope this reveals isn't just an apology and a hermeneutic of how to understand the issue of slavery in the Bible, but I also hope it applies to this passage and forces us as the church of Jesus Christ to see our need for Jesus. None of us are slaves. This passage might be better, it might be easier to apply in countries where there still are slaves. And probably the closest one to one comparison we have in our culture is within the context of the military. Those who serve must obey the commands of their superiors. And those who have served in the military probably far better understand what Paul is commanding here, that slaves obey their masters. But we also need to see how this applies to us. We all have relationships similar to this situation, similar to this scenario. Whether we are employers or employees, we are all subordinate to somebody. And others are to us. Students, you are subordinate to your teachers. And you have subordinates. You have those who look up to you. Those who follow you wherever you go. Those who look to you for leadership. And it is in these relationships that Paul wants us to see how the gospel applies. Bondservants, obey your masters with fear and trembling, with sincere heart, as you would Christ. If we believe in the gospel, if we believe in the good news that Jesus saves sinners, we are called to serve those who are our superiors as though we are serving Jesus Christ himself. Not in the way of eye service, as people pleasers, as Paul says in verse 6, but as bondservants, as slaves to Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. As I read this passage, I was reminded of a conversation I had with Brandon Sheridan, and he was talking about his work. And if you know what Brandon does... Please let me know, because I really don't know. <laughs> Except that he goes into cotton fields, and he inspects cottons. And he told me that he needs help, because what he needs is someone that he can trust that will go into all the different cotton fields and check all the cotton and make sure, I guess, they're getting what they need, or he can change what they need. But he's having a hard time finding somebody who he can trust that will actually walk into every single cotton field and not just say, oh, yeah, I did that one too. And do you know who should be able to do this job for Brandon Sheridan? Every Christian alive. For we are all called to work diligently and respectfully as though we are serving Christ every second of every day knowing that God sees everything that we are doing. Imagine, just imagine, us as a church, if this is how we worked in our jobs every single day. As though the one that we were serving, we were serving them as though they were Christ himself. Athletes, do you cut corners when your coaches aren't looking? Students, 
Do you cheat when your teachers aren't looking? Adults, do you fill out reports without even looking at them? Because you think they're just a waste of time. Do you not do what your boss asks you to do because you think it's pointless and worthless, and you know that nothing will come of it? Or do you serve your authorities with fear and trembling as though you were serving Christ himself? Paul is saying that the gospel changes everything. We've already seen in chapter 5, it changes our marriages. We saw in the beginning of chapter 6, it changes the way that we relate to our children. And Paul's saying here too, it changes every square inch of our life as though we are serving Christ. These are the implications of the, of the gospel. This is what it looks like to live within the kingdom of God. This is what it looks like to put on our new selves and to put off our old selves. And look what Paul does in verses 8 and 9. This command isn't just for bond servants, for slaves. This isn't just for employees. He says, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters do the same. Paul is applying this kingdom ethic to everyone in all places. It goes up the chain and down the chain. We are to serve and obey as we serve and obey Christ. I knew a man once, I'll call him Clint. He worked a job that he was not qualified for. He received no training. He had no qualifications that enabled him to do his job at all. He had no idea actually how to do his job. He constantly made his work hard, and he made the work for everyone around him even harder. There is one thing that he did well. He always asked for help. He would ask his employees what he should do in certain situations. But the catch was, is he always took the credit as if, if it was his idea. He received his job because the one hiring him played favorites. And yet he found himself in his job day by day, week by by week, year by year, and those working him, for him found it harder and harder and harder and harder. My seminary professor wisely said, young adults, and I'm not exactly sure what he meant by young adults, so let's just assume that's all of us, right? We're all young adults. Except, he says, young adults think that they will never work for someone like Clint. Then my professor said, Older adults, they think that they will never work for anyone other than Clint. The point he was trying to make is that whether you're a young adult or a, an older adult, work doesn't always come as enjoyable or gratifying. It doesn't always give you a sense of fulfillment. However, we are called to do it diligently, respectfully, 
with fear and trembling as though we are serving Christ himself. Some people see it as a sad reality. Sometimes we don't ever get the job that we think we deserve. We don't ever get the promotion. We don't ever get the respect that we deserve. But I think what we all need to hear is what Paul says to the church. You serve a new master. And as I said last week, he calls children to obey their parents even when it's hard. Even when they don't want to, even when they think they, are, they know better, even when they think that it is too disgusting or too indi- and it's, it's just too bad to actually do. Paul reveals that for a child, gospel reliance upon Jesus means that you go to Jesus even when it's hard to obey. Guess what? The same is true at work. We are called to obey even when it's hard. Even when we don't want to. Even when we think it's demeaning. And when we can't do it, we look to Jesus. For he is our strength. He is the one that came to do what we could not do. And guess what? Jesus was tempted in every way, yet he was without sin. We all have the same reality. We need to look and rest on the perfect obedience of Christ to follow him by faith and to serve those who are above us and to love those who are beneath us. We all apply the same gospel truth this morning because this is what Paul says. Obey your earthly masters as you would Christ. We are called to obey. Christ came and he obeyed. We live on complete dependence. We are called through the gospel to fulfill our calling as image bearers, to work the land, to cultivate it, subduing creation, caring for creation. And we can only do this properly when we see Christ. The obedient life is a gospel-shaped life. In our marriage, in our home, even at work. An obedient life is seeing our need and how Jesus saves us when we couldn't save ourselves. When he saved us when we were unlovable. He saved us when we were slaves to sin. But now he saves us and we are slaves of righteousness. We've received a changed heart, not because of our own work, but because of the work of Christ. There is no partiality with our God. All will be judged by the work, whether it's good or it's bad. We will either be judged by the work of Christ or our own work. My prayer is that we run to Christ. That we might serve our jobs, our superiors. We might love others as we love Christ. Let's pray.